Welcome to Engage Arizona, public policy for daily life. The election season that was forming in the first few months of the year has taken on a whole new look. With COVID-19, its effects on the economy, and an abrupt end to the Arizona legislative session, who knows how it will play out. Today, Center for Arizona Policy turns to George Kaloff for some insights into the current climate and its impact on the 2020 election. Welcome to Engage Arizona. I'm Cindy Dahlgren. It's an election year, and everyone wants to know what's going to happen, both on a state and national level. And even though we can't know for sure until November 3rd, we still look for any insights that will ease our anxiety or motivate voters along the way. For that, we turn to people like George Kaloff. George is co-founder of Resolute Group and Data Orbital. Between the two, George is knee-deep in state politics, polling, messaging, researching, and analyzing data. Thanks for joining us, George. Thank you for having me. First, briefly uh, tell us what both companies do here in Arizona. Absolutely. So both Data Orbital and the Resolute Group based here in Phoenix. Um, We service clients all over the country. Data Orbital does survey research and data analytics for uh, for folks in the political and public policy spaces. And then the Resolute Group was uh, co-founded the most recently in January of 2019. And we are specifically working on political and message consulting uh, for conservative values, and free enterprise clients and organizations. All right. For uh, those who don't know much about you, give us a little brief overview of your background and how you got passionate about politics. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm an immigrant. I was born in Beirut, Lebanon. And um, for those that don't have tons of knowledge about Lebanon, Lebanon was uh, was in the middle of uh, just getting out of a 25-year civil war at that point. And so uh, my heritage being from Lebanon was a big part of why I got involved in politics. Both my parents were very involved, and particularly my father. And so I grew up as a child hearing stories about Lebanon and the sacrifices that both my parents gave. And so when we moved to the United States of America for more opportunity and for a better life, that my parents felt that me and my two younger sisters deserved, that kind of got me hooked into politics. And so I felt from a young age led um, as, as sort of having politics be my mission field. It was, you know, I said as early as 13 that I wanted to be a political consultant with that exact phrase. Not many 13-year-olds would say that. Well, not many 13-year-olds would know what that is. Exactly. I went to school for political science and never held a job outside of this space. I absolutely love it, feel very passionate about it, and uh, feel beyond blessed that I've gotten the opportunities that I've had up until this point. Wow. Interesting. Thank you. All right. Well, let's talk uh, state elections first. Tell us about Arizona's current status, how you would describe the Arizona legislature at this point. Absolutely. So Arizona's closed. Yes, besides closed. um, Arizona's been in a unique situation, I think, the last 10 to 15 years. Uh, 10 years ago, I think most people would say that Arizona had pretty strong pro-family, pro-life majorities in both the state house, state senate, had a um, pro-family, pro-life governor. I mean, we were, uh, you know, the movement, as I'll refer to it, was in, a, was in a pretty good position. And I think over these last 10 years, some call it the purpling of the state. I just refer to, there's, there's definitely changes afoot in Arizona, and I think some caught people by, uh, by surprise, others didn't. And so I think right now I would say the state of Arizona is that um, pro-life, pro-family members of the legislature have a very, very slim majority. And we'll talk about this in a bit. In the state Senate, I don't believe that there is a majority. I believe it's exactly 15-15. 
Uh, I think we have a very strong pro-life, pro-family governor and certain members of uh, statewide elected officials like the attorney general, but it is not as commonplace as it once was. And it makes the jobs of, of folks like us uh, at the Resolute Group, even folks at Center for Arizona Policy and other like-minded organizations, it makes work a bit more difficult. And especially as you're looking into an election year, because there's been so much change. And I think we're in for quite a bit more change here from 2020 on. Okay, yeah, yeah, we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, tell us how many lawmakers are up for re-election or running for an open seat, and which one of those we should really be watching and why. Yeah, so technically every two years, all 90 members of our state legislature are up, 60 in the state House, 30 in the state Senate. This year we have three corporation commission seats up, but no other statewide at the non-federal level. Of course, we have a U.S. Senate race that everyone's familiar with and a presidential race. So while technically the entire legislature is up, there's a number of districts that are pretty clear who's going to win. It's, it's not a surprise. Most of them are um, partisan. Obviously, uh, all state legislative races are partisan. And so most we know if it's going to be a Republican, if it's going to be a Democrat, if it's going to be a pro-life, pro-family, or if it's not. I would say that there's probably a handful of races, three or four, in what we call the primary, because obviously we have a primary in August and then a general in November where there's, I think, serious contention between a pro-life, pro-family person versus someone who is not, or at least much less so than the other individual. And then I would say from a general election perspective, there's probably definitely no more than 10, I would say again, right around five or six. So again, you would think that of the 30 districts that we have in the state, only a handful are ever considered toss-ups. And then in those, some of them, there's really not a difference from a pro-life, pro-family perspective, regardless of political affiliation. And so it narrows the pot even more in terms of what seats are being watched. And so I think the state Senate has two or three districts that, again, there's a lot of eyeballs on what happens in those races. Um, Most of them are here in Maricopa County, one of which is in northern Arizona, uh, in a district that stretches from the Verde Valley Flagstaff down to Payson. And then in the state house, there's, again, most of them are in Maricopa County with that same district in northern Arizona also seeing a um, a contended uh, house race. And it's unique here in Arizona as well, because it's the same contiguous district, but there's one member of the Senate, two in the house. And so there's strategies and games that people play in terms of, do you run two that are similar? So two pro-life, pro-family, do you run two that oppose? Do you only run one? So there's some strategy that uh, comes into play that way as well. Okay. And so, well, what are the likely scenarios? What do you expect knowing what you know at this point in the race? I know we're still several months out. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously the COVID-19 situation has dramatically affected the political arena in the sense of people aren't, haven't been campaigning. And the little campaigning that's been occurring has been virtual. And bluntly speaking, and I talk to clients every day about this, most people aren't paying attention to politics right now. Most people right now are figuring out how to put food on their table and, and how to just contend with the crisis. But with that, I think that the likeliest scenario in Arizona is actually going to be status quo, which technically doesn't ever make either side happy. But I think what's most likely to happen is anytime there's a crisis, it tends to favor those that are in office or incumbents, right? Because if you're in office, you come from a position of power, you're more likely to have more money and more resources. And when you're not able to actually go door to door, which is technically for free, and you have to send more mail, you know, mail pieces um, to people's mailboxes, you have to spend on digital advertisements, that causes there to be a favor towards those that are in elective office. So I think that it's likely going to be a status quo. 
I think it's going to be pretty similar to what occurred in 2018 from a state house uh, state senate perspective sorry i should say where it remained 1713 um, but i should actually say really from a pro-life pro-family perspective it's 1515 i don't see much change occurring there i think there is a scenario in the primary election where that could have some effect um, that is a lot more difficult i think to um, to forecast and, and foretell into the future i think from a state house perspective almost all of it rides on the general election and I think that, again, there's a couple districts where there's a favor towards those that are pro-life, pro-family, and there's a couple districts where it's the opposite. So even if both sides gain one, gain two, I think it's going to end up washing out. Again, I think status quo is most likely really the only other scenario is, I think, I think unfortunately, it's going to be pretty difficult for pro-life, pro-family majorities to grow. I think there's a lot of effort to have it be the case. I think that there could be a scenario, which I think is by far the least likely where there's a regression in that. I see that potentially on the state house side, there's some really, really difficult races where there's going to be hundreds of thousands of dollars spent. I think on the state Senate, again, I don't see much change. On the state house, there could be change. But I really do think of the two, the likelier scenario is status quo, which again, nothing changes. And then that gets us into redrawing the district lines in uh, for the elections in 2022, which will cause a complete reshaping of the Arizona political landscape. Well, can you talk a little bit about about that? What, what do you expect that to look like when it's reshaped? Yeah, absolutely. So Arizona, we have an independent redistricting commission. So every 10 years after the census, the Speaker of the House, the Senate President, the majority leader, or the, the minority leaders in both chambers, appoint one individual per um, or one of the five members. And then those four members vote on the fifth, what we call neutral member or independent. And so that five-member commission is responsible, unlike in the vast majority of states around the country, that five-member commission is responsible for redrawing our district lines according to the new census numbers. And so every year, and, I, and I'm sure listeners are very familiar with the, the idea of gerrymandering, where one side rigs the lines to favor them, and you see these very oddly shaped lines. Maryland is historically known for this. At like There's a district that stretches almost the entire state. Uh, examples like that. I think Arizona's pretty, um, I think we've, I think it's been, the lines have been decently fair, but it all depends on who controls the independent redistricting. And so I think that there's a chance that if um, things work out well, that the pro-life, pro-family um, folks could have a larger seat at the table in a new legislature. If lines are drawn, we're almost guaranteed to gain a congressional seat, which is a big deal for Arizona. We would have 10, 10 congressional seats. We're at nine currently. And so there's a lot of talk about where exactly what part of the valley that we'll be in. Odds are that it'll be in the Maricopa. Uh, it'll be in Maricopa County. So there's going to be a lot of change, but people tend to look for that as a restart only because incumbents oftentimes choose that year to not run again for re-election because their district looks different and it's going to be a, it's a lot tougher of a race, the first race after redistricting because odds are that there's a lot of really new, you're talking to new people. Even if it's a little bit, you're still talking to new voters that are never heard from you before. Oh, wow. So if that happens, we could see a whole lot of new faces at the state capitol. Exactly. It was night and day. So between 2010 and 2012, there's a big difference. And the other really big thing that's very unique about 2022 is last time it occurred in 2012, it was the presidential race that was up. And so there was no governor. The governor's race wasn't on the ballot. This to go around in 2022, we're going to have brand new redrawn lines, new congressional lines, but most importantly, we're going to have a governor that's term limited. And so no matter what, we're going to have a new governor coming after, you know, coming out of 2022 because Governor Doug Ducey can't run for office anymore legally. 
And so that's going to have a dramatic impact on the legislative races as well. So uh, on November 4th, after this is all over, it's we're not going to get a break, it doesn't sound like, because it sounds like there's going to be a lot going on leading up to 2022. And we're not going to get that little bit of break from campaigning like we normally do. Exactly. People like me will have absolutely zero break. Maybe we'll be able to enjoy November 4th to Christmas. Uh, that's our kind of rest rest season. Right away, though, we're going to be in independent redistricting mode. And then come July, uh, June, I would say May and June of 2021, I, I, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised that there's already individuals that have announced to run for governor. Definitely, there's going to be some really strong rumors going on. And then definitely by the early fall, there's going to be campaigns that announce. And so we'll be full steam ahead. Essentially, the United States of America, particularly in Arizona, we're in year-round full-time campaign mode, which again, professionals like myself in the political space, that's why we're able to build businesses. But it's very unique comparative to other parts of the world where you run every five years. It's just, it's a very different, uh, very different style. Yeah, I'm sure. Would, do you, you said that we would be hearing rumors by next um, summer, but not now? You haven't heard any rumors now? We're definitely hearing rumors. I think today they're much more speculation than anything. I think anything after this election cycle, most people, if you're really serious, you're going to keep the rumor mill pretty quiet about yourself because it's not in good taste to announce something before the previous election has occurred. Right. So without saying names, is it, does it sound exciting? It, it sounds absolutely exciting. Absolutely. There's going to be, it is going to be a multi, multi-way, I would predict a multi, multi-way uh, primary on both, both sides, both parties. And it's going to be a very contentious um, general election for, for everything, for statewide and depending who runs for governor, it could open up other statewide seats. The attorney general as well is term limited. So no matter what, we're going to have a new attorney general as well. It's, it's going to be a lot of change. Wow. Okay. I'm looking forward to it. All right. So what happens if we do lose that pro-life, pro-family majority you were talking about earlier? What will that translate to in, for, in policy and in daily life for Arizonans? It will translate into political paralysis for people that believe in pro-life and pro-family legislation. That essentially means that we won't be able to get much passed. That essentially means that our governor, who is very pro-life and pro-family, will have his hands tied. And that the majorities that don't believe in those issues and causes will have leverage points to just be able to conduct every normal day business like passing a budget. Because politics is all all about a give and take. It's all about the horse trading. And so when we don't hold majorities, it causes heartburn for those in the minority or those in positions of power that do believe in these issues. And so I do think that it'll be a dramatic impact. And unfortunately, I don't think the average voter is going to feel and fully um, understand that impact until it's too late, right? People like myself, when we're looking at it, we can see the numbers, you know, we look back in time, you look forward, you can kind of see the pain points. But of course, an average everyday Arizonan isn't sitting here worried about every detail of the electoral process until it gets closer to election day. But unfortunately, there's going to be a lot of impact. We're going to, you know, right now we have consistently been rated a number one pro-life state. And we could very easily lose that. And I always like to use this example. And I've heard this example used by many people in our world of Virginia. Look at what happened in Virginia after the 2019 election. Virginia is almost a whole new state, a completely new state because the pro-life, pro-family majorities, and they were very slim in the state Senate there. It was like a, it was a vote. They lost them. And now they're rolling back protections. We can't forget what happened in New York, New York, pro-life, pro-family majority in the state Senate there. The second it was rolled back, Remember cheers from the audience when the pro-life 
basic pro-life uh, policy positions that are, are common to people like you and I were rolled back because they were deemed too they were deemed too extreme. So that's what we're in for in Arizona. If we don't really pay attention to what's happening, it matters who we have in elective office. I can't stress that enough. Yeah, and one or two people can make all the difference. Absolutely. Right now, one person in the state house makes all the difference. We are at 31, 29, one change, and that's it. 30, 30 doesn't get you anywhere when it comes to pro-life, um, you know, when it comes, sorry, I should say, when it comes to passing legislation. Yeah, well, there's also change in the electorate. So, you know, how is the makeup of voters changing in Arizona and why? And do you expect it to continue? Yeah, so the most common thing that people always cite is there's obviously an increase um, in Hispanic uh, residents in Arizona and Hispanic voters. But from a pro-life, pro-family perspective, um, without getting too much into sort of the anthropology and, and, and sort of sociology world, but um, Hispanic voters actually are, are, are pretty pro-life, pro-family when you ask them about issues. When politics gets into play, it's a little bit of a different circumstance, but they're churchgoers, they're people of faith, they're bringing their values from wherever they came from. Um, like how my family brought our values from from Lebanon in the Middle East, and so it's a it's a big deal to us. I think the thing though that's causing, bluntly speaking, the most heartburn for pro life, pro family um, professionals and, and the movement are actually new movers from California. And not to pick on California, and I've had lots of fun picking on California. I also love to enjoy California beaches. But from our perspective, from a public policy position, a lot of these voters coming from California, even if they are. If the, even if they have a tendency to be pro-life, pro-family, they're not coming from a place that is at all oftentimes pro-life, pro-family. Definitely the state is not, and most of the areas are not. And so it's, it's, a, it's a whole new world, and they come to Arizona, and they're caught off guard, and they're bringing, unfortunately, some of their values. Again, we love new movers in Arizona. We love to grow, but there's a reason why we're gaining a congressional seat. It's not because of immigration or just because of immigration. It's because we're an attractive place to live. We've got great weather. So people from California, Colorado, other places are moving here, but particularly California. And I think that's what's really changing our dynamic. And so we need to do a good job as people that are pro-life and pro-family, educating those individuals as to if you want to keep enjoying the benefits of Arizona that led you to move here, you have to behave more like us if you bring the principles that you left, which is why they're leaving California or why people in the Northeast leave and go to Florida, for example. That's a, that's a you know, New Jersey to Florida is almost the same as California to Arizona, just different sides of the country. You can't bring your principles and, and come over um, because that defeats the purpose of, of, of what it means to be an Arizonan and, and really what Arizona values are. And that's something that, that I think, again, the governor's done a good job of leading on and, and our majorities in both the uh, House and the Senate. Okay. All right. So Arizona has several initiatives on the ballot coming up here. Uh, proponents, though, have been stymied um, in collecting signatures because of uh, COVID-19. What can we expect and what should we be paying attention to? Yes, Arizona is in a very unique position with the framers of our state constitution allowed the, the people to collect signatures and put things to a direct vote of the people, which is really good for democracy but because of other things that have then since been passed is really difficult from a public policy perspective. And just to touch on this before I answer specifically about 2020, for anyone that doesn't know, anything that gets voted on and passed in Arizona via initiative or referendum is what we call voter protected because of a law that passed in the 90s, which means that the state legislature cannot change it at all. So if we pass something and then we learn it has a bad effect or we learn anything about it, all we can do is three-fourths of it can only pass 
additional legislation to further the original intent. So you can't roll anything back. So I just want to frame it as to why some folks are apprehensive about the ease in which we are able to change our state constitution or, or um, enshrine these laws, because unlike in the legislature where they can go back and fix them the next session, we can't do that unless you go back to a vote of the people, which is, we right. know is very expensive. So in Arizona, that's very important. Yes. Yes. That's critical. Now in Arizona specifically, the likeliest one to make the ballot is the legalization of recreational marijuana. And if you're thinking that this is deja vu, it partly is. We faced the same initiative in 2016. Then there was an attempt to bring it back and it failed, I should say. We were the only state in the union to, to have a majority no vote on legalizing recreational marijuana. It was by about 3%. In 2018, they weren't able, um, the pro-marijuana legalization folks were not able to kind of, you know, for lack of a better phrase, a word, get their act together. And so nothing made the ballot. They are very likely, it seems, to be on the ballot in 2020. So that's going to be a very hotly contested election again. There's a number of other ones that I think we're on the path to get on the ballot, but because of the COVID-19 situation, I think it's going to be a bit more difficult. There was a there was an income tax one, uh, another version of what is called Invest in Ed, that uh, you know, petitions are being collected for right now that would raise taxes to fund uh, K-12 education. There's a uh, what we call a criminal justice reform one. It's, it's, it's The name of it officially is a second chance. Um, and so that would change the way that we have our sentencing laws and mandatory minimums and, and you know, what drug offenses and nonviolent offenses, you know, can or can you not uh, throw you in jail, things like that. So it, it sort of changes our laws around sentencing and victims' rights. Then there's one that's being run by Save Our Schools, which touches on, excuse me, which touches on um, empowerment scholarship accounts and different things around school choice and, and kind of rolling back educational freedom that again is a hallmark of Arizona. Like life, we are known for, for being pro-educational freedom here. Um, and there's a number of others. There's, a, there's also what's called dark money, which I like to call not dark money, but, uh, but sort of anonymous speech or free speech from a giving perspective that says that um, anyone that gives political dollars must have their information disclosed. And so there's a quite a bit that could be on the ballot. I mean, you know, at one point we thought that the ballot would have to have ex extra pages on it or the ballot was going to reach the floor if you open it up in front of you in the ballot box because of how many things were on the ballot. I don't think it's likely that the vast majority of those get on the ballot. It's going to be pretty expensive right now to collect signatures. There's a general thought that, you know, it's people are uncomfortable uh, having someone at their door to collect petitions. As you know, to sign a petition, you have to exchange pens, you have to touch a clipboard. In this COVID-19 situation, that makes people apprehensive. There is rumors definitely that some petition gathering firms are hiring people right now to do that. So I think we're in wait and see. There's also two court cases, one in the state courts and one in the federal courts that are um, that some of these ballot initiatives are looking to be able to get uh, signatures online. A, a lot of folks um, think that that's, that's against the, <clears throat> the original intent of the state constitution if you collect signatures online. So anyways, there's just a lot that's going on in the, in the initiative and referendum world. But I think that odds are the vast majority of those that I just highlighted, which I know is a lot, um, I think the vast majority of them do not end up getting on the ballot. And some of the ones that you mentioned, even, you know, saying the titles of them and a little bit of the description and 
I know a little bit about some of them. It's important. It makes me think it's important to encourage people to read them before you even sign those because sometimes the titles can sound very interesting or appealing, but they don't necessarily do what you think they're going to do. And so um, so it's always a, a good idea to not just uh, listen to the little two-sentence blurb that the person tells you that it's about when they're asking for the signature, to, but to actually read it yourself and find out what exactly you're signing. Absolutely. It is It is very different in my mind from signing a petition to put an individual on the ballot, like a person, than it is to actually sign a petition to put a potential law on the ballot because it's a simple majority there. And over here for candidates, you're limited to signing the amount that you would be able to actually give votes. So if there is one seat available, you can only sign one petition here, you could sign 50 different initiatives. Mm -hmm. And really it's all about who has the most money because conceivably you're not going to be able to collect 300,000 plus signatures statewide in Arizona. We're a very large state. This isn't like in New Jersey or back East where you can drive one end of the state to the other in a couple hours. It's a problem. So yes, absolutely. Read, read, read before you get approached to the library or in front of a grocery store. Okay, before we, we run out of time here, I want to touch a little bit on the national election. How would you as assess it at this point as of today? You did talk a little bit about uh, COVID-19 and how that might affect uh, um, things here in Arizona, but on a broader scale, talk about that. Yeah, I think it's pretty difficult to kind of say exactly how COVID-19 is going to affect the presidential race. It tends to be that when America's in a time of war or internal or external, external which I think having being in the middle of a pandemic is akin to war in the sense of, you know, the nation likes to rally around the flag and who kind of is the leader right now, it's the president. And obviously that'd be President Trump, the incumbent. And so I do think that any potential downsides that COVID-19 causes the economy could end up being balanced out by the fact that he's our leader right now, the leader of the country. And so he's the one that's helping kind of guide the, the COVID-19 response. I do think that um, Joe Biden is going to have a tough time really breaking through the noise. I saw a statistic the other day that whether it was news mentions, social media mentions, Google searches, and there was one other metric, President Trump compared it to Joe Biden in terms of just name, um, the amount of times that your name comes up, it was like from five to 15 times more for President Trump than for Joe Biden. That's a big deal. That's all free, what we call earned media. And so it's going to be hard to kind of compete with that and especially also compete with the fact that President Trump's been fundraising for the last two years and Joe Biden had a pretty pretty difficult, I think by all intents and purposes, difficult primary race. And so um, I do think right now, the presidential race, I would still label it as a toss up. I think Arizona specifically is, um, I think leans towards President Trump, but I think overall it's a toss up. But uh, the one thing I'll, as a, as a pollster, I feel the need to always share this with folks when I speak. And so the one thing I'll tell uh, the listeners is that um, don't take a lot of, uh, don't put a lot of stock and weight into national surveys because national surveys is not how, as, as everyone knows, that's not how we elect a president. It's not who gets the most votes. <clears throat> it's state by state. We have the electoral college. So look for surveys from states that matter. Arizona, Florida, North Carolina, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. Those are the state surveys that you need to look for, not national surveys, because if we remember Hillary Clinton won by about 3%, and yet we don't have President Clinton, we have President Trump. And so just keep that in mind when you're looking at state, uh, sorry, national politics. Interesting. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. Well, thank you. Fascinating insights. I appreciate it. Thank you, George, for joining us, sharing your perspective. We'll have to touch base with you again when the election gets a little bit closer. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to Engage Arizona, public policy for daily life. 
If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe, rate, and give a review on any podcast platform you use. For more information, visit azpolicy.org.